0: go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. you You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you so much for being here. Happy Saturday. Hope you're having a good weekend so far. Uh, a lot to do today in the next three hours. I want to talk about Warren G. Harding in the next hour. Thinking, what? Why? Why? It's like there's nothing else going on. You're gonna talk about Warren G. Harding. It'll make sense. It's, it'll it's has a lot to do with specifically Donald Trump today. Warren G. Harding elected in 1920. Uh so we'll do that in the next hour. Let's get right to it. I want to get right to the Brexit. Which by the way, not a big fan of that name, but whatever. So my brother lives in London, and I texted him yesterday to find out his thoughts on it. But he has a two-day old so, and a two-year-old, so I, he hasn't gotten back to me. He's kind of busy, but I'll let you know what he says when <laughs> when he's not busy in 25 years, but no, no, no insight from him, and I'll be honest, I, we never talked about it because no one thought it would happen, and even when the results were coming in, they didn't think it was going to happen, and then even when it happened, they didn't think it happened here's my deal and my, my initial reaction. And I'm just kind of confused at this point with the, what I'm looking at overreaction from people flipping out is uh, I am always for freedom, independence, and sovereignty, freedom, independence, and sovereignty. That's what this is. So that's my original foundation. That That's my starting point. If you want to give up some independence and sovereignty, you have to tell me why that's good. Does that make sense? It's not on me to tell you why independence and sovereignty is good. We know it is. It's, the onus is on the EU to say why it's better to give some of that up. And clearly they haven't done that. Do you know the president of the EU? His name is Jean-Claude Juncker. He's been the president the last few years. President of over 500 million people. 500 million people. Do you know how he was elected? A bit of a trick question. He wasn't. 13 commissioners, commissionaries, went into a room and appointed him. So the people of Europe did not hire him and the people of Europe cannot fire him. Why is this good? Who, Who thinks this is a good thing? Who... I don't, I don't understand people, again, people are freaking out about this as if it's the end of the world, when I don't even know why the EU is good. Here, think about it like this. Because we tend to romanticize Europe over here in America, especially on the left. They think Europe is great and wonderful and we need to be more like it. Imagine if there was a American Union meaning North America and South America. Okay, there's North American and South American union. And the capital of it was in Belize. And different representatives from different areas appointed a president of this new union out of Belize. And he dictates, you know, how... Your business uh, and how much how much electricity your business can use uh, when it manufacture like what like no I don't <laughs> I don't want someone in Belize to make any rules based on that that I have to follow it's crazy so why would people in London want that out of Brussels and why do we romanticize that here in America all right couple other things. Massive rebuke to Obama, of course. It wouldn't be necessarily, but it is because he threw himself in the mix in the first place. And he didn't need to. He urged people there not to vote to leave. And he warned them. He told the British people that if they leave, they're going to be moved to the back of the queue. When it comes to trade with us, which is absurd. Moved to the back of the line? What are you doing? Now, that obviously didn't go over well. This is Andrew Roberts, British historian. He said, surely, surely. This is an issue on which the British people and they alone have the right to decide without the intervention of President Obama, who adopted his haughtiest professorial manner when lecturing us to stay in the EU before making the naked threat that we would be sent to the back of the queue in any future trade deals if we had the temerity to vote to leave. Was my country at the back of the line when Winston Churchill promised in 1941 that in the event of a Japanese attack on the U.S., a British declaration of war on Japan would be made within the hour? Were we at the back of the line on 9-11? Or do we step forward immediately and instinctively as the very first of your allies to contribute troops to join you in the expulsion of the Taliban in Afghanistan? Or in Iraq two years later? Was it the French or the Germans or the Belgians who stood and fought and bled alongside you? Whatever views you might have over the rights or wrongs of that war, no one can deny that Britain was in its accustomed place at the front of the line. In the firing line. So it is not right for President Obama now to threaten to send us to the back of the line. What an absurd thing to say from our president. That, that should go up there with um, the police acted stupidly. I right? Remember that way in the beginning of his term? Here we are way at the end of his term, and he says something dumb like that. What the heck? And it doesn't even make any sense. Everyone's talking about the new problems that are going to come about with trade because of the Brexit. Why? What What did they do in 1991 before the EU? I'm sure they traded with each other, so why can't they still trade now? And why can't we still trade with London? Like that's, I don't understand the problem. All right, uh, last point for this segment that I want to bring it home to America. Well, this will be a good segue to that, actually. So this is uh, a British guy in Vanity Fair. Because right? everyone's talking about why. How could this have happened? Actually, only the elite worded like that. Like, what happened? Oh, my, how did this happen? That's that's the elite talking. It's the immigration, stupid. That's the reason that Britain has voted to leave the EU. Trump's antenna is attuned to what's going on in the minds of his people, even if they may be Brits. According to one poll, check this out, immigration was listed as the priority of only 14% of those who wanted to remain in in the EU. But among those who wanted to leave, 52% said it was their priority. Those images of Syrian refugees streaming north throughout last year and the attacks in Paris probably made all the difference between Cameron winning and losing the vote. Think of that. Those who wanted to stay, immigration is not a big concern. But those who wanted to leave, it was the biggest concern. And that's why. One reason why, and we'll talk about this in the next segment, that's one reason why the elites, the media, and all the rest didn't see this coming and don't understand it. Because, again, they're just like here in America, they're like, yeah, immigrants, party, the more. the more the merrier. And everyone else is saying, whoa, hold on. And not not in a, in a no, deport everyone way, but just in a, hey, whoa, can we just hold on for a second here while we figure out what's happening? Can we just... Because in England, they're a couple years ahead of us. No. Oh, by the way, I should say this too. When they say immigration, when British people say immigration, they don't mean there's too many Dutch people moving to England. <laughs> they're, they're not they're like, whoa, 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 way too many Italians here. I, we can't. Too many Polish people. I, don't, I like kielbasa as much as the next guy, but there's way. that's not what they're talking about. They're talking about Muslims. Uh, they're talking about Middle Eastern immigrants. And way more than here, I mean here in America, Muslims are only about one percent of the population, right growing, but like almost nothing. England is way bigger, and twenty five percent of them believe in Sharia law okay so so big problem in england they 're way ahead of us on this, although we 're catching up quickly, and that 's why fifty two percent are seeing their culture evaporating and that 's what I want to talk about in the next segment because the people who are against leaving are calling the People who voted to leave, nationalists, but but in a negative way. It's a slur. It's like what Hitler was, right? He was a nationalist. But George Orwell wrote about the difference between nationalism and patriotism, and this is a very important difference. But one last point here, just to prove that this was about immigration, the mayor of London, who is Muslim, the first Muslim mayor of a Western city, wrote this long Facebook message the day after the vote. Talking about immigration and saying, hey, immigrants all over the EU, come to London, right? We love immigrants. Immigrants are amazing here, blah, 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 blah. Why would he write that if it wasn't about immigration? Clearly it is. That's what that was about in England. And dare I say, that's what this election is going to be about here in America as well. Throw in a terrorist attack or two in the meantime. And there you go. You got Trump in a landslide. And you will have the people in the media. Here, just as gobsmacked, just as flabbergasted as over there. Because the people in the media over there, they don't know anyone who wanted to vote to leave. And the people in the media here, they don't know anyone who likes Trump. That's why they can't fathom it. But they'll be in for quite a surprise. All right, we'll talk about how this applies to Trump and the difference between nationalism and patriotism, a very important distinction. We'll do that next. Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
3: Mike Slater.
0: We'll continue in a moment. On the Blaze Radio Network.
1: In the next 19 seconds, you could sell your home.
2: Slater, Slater, Thanks for being here. Uh, if you could like us on Facebook, that'd be awesome. You can just search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Uh, we usually put up a couple videos a week. We didn't put any of this week though because we're doing some side projects that are taking up our time. We, um, I'll tell you this story real quick. So this is the next video. that's going to be put up. Uh, I spoke, uh, introduced Ted Cruz when he was in San Diego uh, for his rally, and met a gentleman there, Albert, who is a Mexican citizen. Big Ted Cruz fan. And he told me that he is working to become an American citizen. I said, Albert, that's awesome. He said, call me the day before you take your citizenship test, and we'll do a quiz on the air. Just a practice, practice quiz. My local show. So he said, I'll do it. So just a couple weeks after that, day before his big test, uh, the citizenship test, it's 10 questions. And... I just, I think they give you a hundred possible questions and, and you, they pick 10. So I, I picked 10, 10, 10 out. It wasn't even close. 10 out of 10, nailed them all. One of the questions was name one war fought in the 19th century and he rattled off all four. Just like boom, 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 boom. No, no problem. Nailed it. Knows way more than most Americans. I guarantee you that because most people even listening now are like, wait, the civil war. Uh, I don't know. He named four. Um, So that was a couple weeks ago. Just on Tuesday, he uh, was sworn in with his citizenship. In San Diego, I think they do it once a month. At least this last Tuesday, they had 600 new citizens from 66 different countries. And it's awesome. And uh, we were down there and we videotaped it all. We made a little mini documentary. So that's the next video to be released. And it's good because almost everyone likes this. This is how it should be done. And to listen to Albert talk about what it means to be an American and why he wanted to be an American and what this means for his family and he's crying. like That's awesome. But it's done the right way. That's the key. And that's what that video is going to be about. And I I think even people in England would feel the same way because Albert wants to be an American. Not just citizenship, but in every other way. He says, and, and I've, I've, after talking to him a bunch of times, I will attest to this, he's more American than most people who were born here when it comes to firm understanding of what that means and how grateful he is, and we all are, to be here. And I think that's what the people of England are doing as well when it comes to immigration because, again, a majority of the people who voted for leaving said immigration was their number one concern. But, again, it's not because there's too many French people moving to England. It's Muslims. That's the key. And they don't like how their culture is changing so drastically. Now, what does this mean for our election coming up here in the next few months? Have you heard the word harbinger? I've, I've heard that word maybe three times my whole life, but 50 times in the last two days. The Brexit is a harbinger of what's to come in America. Harbinger. Why does everyone use the word harbinger for this? So a harbinger comes from a 15th century word, meaning someone who travels ahead of the king or an army and uh, prepares the way. So prepares for hotel rooms and food and stuff like that. So it's someone who moves in front of the arriving event. A harbinger. That's what a harbinger was. So today, harbinger Brexit is a harbinger moving in front of, ahead of, giving us a sign of what's to come in our elections. Anyway, um, it's the same thing. So England is going through their own period of uncertainty. The economy's not good. Again, immigrants flooding in. Or it would be way worse if they weren't an island. You've seen Calais on the the other side of the tunnel. But their culture's changing, and people are um, concerned. And when you're scared, when you're concerned, when things are uneasy, you take bigger risks. In this case, you vote to leave the EU. In our case, most American people will vote for President Trump, I believe. And I alluded to this in the last segment, but people on British TV, what was it, Thursday night, were, were hilariously shocked. Hilarious. Because all the pundits, all the TV anchors, they don't know anyone who would want to leave the EU. And it's the same with our elite class. They don't know anyone who's conservative. Do you remember David Brooks? He's the uh, conservative writer for the New York Times. After Trump, I think it was after he won the nomination, David Brooks wrote this long mea culpa admitting he's lived too long in the bubble that is New York City. And he doesn't know any real conservatives. He doesn't know why people would vote for Trump. He doesn't get it. He doesn't understand it. He's the conservative on the New York Times and he admitted he's like, listen, I got to get out of this place. I got to spend more time out in the real world. Now he is the one person humble enough to admit it in the media class. No one else is. And they are going to be just as amazed just as shocked, just as mortified as the British press were after the Brexit results. So some have said that the people who voted for the the Brexit are uh, nationalistic. They mean it as a slur. Nationalism is a slur. Like Hitler was a nationalist, right? But that's not right. Um, Charles Cook wrote the other day He quoted George Orwell and and George Orwell noted the difference between patriotism and nationalism. Patriotism is a devotion to a particular place and a way of life, right? We get that. And obviously you think that that's the best place and way of life in the world. And that's okay, right? That's why I start every hour with America is the greatest country in the world. It's okay to think that and to say that. But the thing is, while you believe that you don't wish to force it on other people, That's patriotism. Nationalism is inseparable from the desire for power and power over other countries and other people. So to say that people who voted to leave the EU are nationalistic. No. If anything, it's the EU supporters who are nationalistic. They're the ones who want to impose their way over all of Europe. That's not right. The people of England who voted for the Brexit are patriotic. They like their place. They like their way of life. Why Why do you not want to l- let them have independence and sovereignty? And people say that Brexit is isolationist. I- isolationist. It's not that either. I don't get that. It's not like England voted to move to the moon. Like they're still... Where they are, like you can still trade with them, and they can still trade with the rest of Europe, and we can still trade with them. Like what I don't know why any of that has to change. But think about it like this, let's go a little deeper. Why would England, who in recent history has been the most powerful empire in the world, why would they want to be just like just one of many countries? Same with America. The left wants us to be one of many. They want us to be no better, in some ways worse, citizens of the world. Just one of many, to the point of, who are we to say Iran can't have nuclear weapons? Who are we to say we are exceptional? Who are we to say what's right and wrong? Let's not get on our high horse over here, right? That's the progressive mentality, always has been. There's going to be blowback from that. There was in England. They're saying, well, I want to be a citizen of the world. I want our own country. And there's going to be blowback to that mentality here in America. What does it look like? Make America great again. Mike Slater Show, spread the word.
0: Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.
3: Mike Slater.
2: Slater, Slater. I want to throw something your way here. Throw an argument that I heard that I think is interesting. Um, I think, and I think there's something to it. So Scott Adams, who is the founder of the Dilbert cartoons. uh, He's also a a student of persuasion and marketing, and he's been analyzing Trump's persuasion abilities for months. uh, And he's been spot on on everything. He wrote an article the other day about the humiliation of American males the humiliation of American males and his argument is that Trump is going to win this election because men who are half of the population are sick of being the butt of all the jokes and sick of being cast aside in pop culture and, and men will lash out against this by voting for the warrior alpha male in the presidential presidential election and the warrior alpha male over The mother-in-law. The nagging mother-in-law, if you will. I think that's a really interesting take, and and I think there's something to it. Now, you may be saying, Slater, no, 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 no. Policy. We make decisions on policy. We make decisions based on principles. Yeah, you do. But you are like top 3% of the voting public who gets it and who understands what's really important. The other 97% vote based off stuff like this. And it's subconscious, and this is why when they ask people on the streets who you're going to vote for, you get so many people who are undecided. They're like, hmm, I just don't know, Hillary or Trump. It's like, what? can you not even made up? You have no opinion, no opinion. And it's not. I hate them both. It's I don't know. I just haven't decided. So those people, these types of things make a really big difference. And I want to talk more about that coming up in the next hour when we talk about Warren G. Harding. But um, so I've been saying for months now that Trump is the warrior alpha male. And he's the same type of person that people for centuries have gravitated towards, especially in times of confusion and, and turmoil, which I'd say we're in right now, economically and culturally. So Scott Adams links to a, uh, a Cascade commercial, Cascade the uh, dishwashing detergent. And in the commercial, the, the dumb whipped dad buys the cheap detergent and the woman forces him to go back to the store. And he, you know, he's like, oh, okay. And he goes. So this is what Scott Adams says. He says, you can criticize Donald Trump on many dimensions. You can say he's not really a great businessman. You can say he's offensive. You can say he lies. You can hate his policy issues. You can say he has insufficient policy details and lots more. But I think we can all agree that Melania... Never asks Donald to go back to the store because he's too dumb to buy the right kind of soap on the first try. Now, if you're thinking Slater, Donald doesn't buy his own dishwashing detergent. You're missing the point. Okay, it's it's he doesn't get bossed around, which is how men are perceived in pop culture. I'll, I'll prove this here. Let me, let me, let me. Because maybe you're thinking, Slater, how, how how are men pushed around? Brigham Young. Brigham Young did a study and they looked at popular sitcoms in the 50s and compared them to sitcoms in the 90s. So in the 50s, the mom told a joke at dad's expense 1.8 times per episode. In the 90s, so Home Improvement, Simpsons, Roseanne, stuff like that. Not 1.8 times an episode, 4.3 times per episode. So over twice as often. Now that's old school, we know that. But they did another study. This time, they looked at not only the jokes made at dad's expense. But they did it on kids TV shows. So like Girl Meets World, Good Luck Charlie. Shows on the Disney Channel. Now there, it's even worse. On the kids' shows, every 3.24 minutes, dad acts like a buffoon in some way. Every three minutes, dad acts like an idiot. Okay? Now, not only did they do that, but they looked at the reaction of kids on the TV show. And whenever dad acts clueless, which is every three minutes, the kids on the show have a physical reaction to it. So they either roll their eyes, they criticize dad back, they walk away when they're being talked to, somehow they express their annoyance. Now, my wife and I were about to have a kid in like three months, our first. People tell us all the time that kids are sponges. That's the number one advice that people tell us. The kids are sponges. They hear everything. They'll say, repeat everything. They'll say words that you never say, but they heard a stranger say in the park when they were walking by one time. They hear and they take in everything. What do you think kids learn when they see dad on screen, the dad on screen acting dumb and then his kids acting disrespectfully in response? You don't think that that's going to have some effect on their behavior as well? Of course it will. My, our uh, morning local show here in San Diego, we're telling a story where the guy was uh, at the skate park with his kids. His kid's like six and four um, skateboarding. And another group of kids came up like 10 with bikes. So Jack goes to the sign to see if bikes are allowed in this area. Just to see. 10-year-old girl, 10-year-old girl comes up to him. And says, "What the f are you looking at?" But says says the word. You with me? Ten year old girl. He was sh- like, uh, 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 like <laughs> he had no idea what to do. Is it? It bothered him all day. Like, what is happening when a ten year old girl will come up to me and say that? Now, obviously, there's a lot going on in that person. That kid's home. But it's also all around us. We are kids are stewing and seeped in that pop culture. All right, so Slater, what does that have to do with Trump? Trump doesn't back down. Again, the warrior alpha male, the strong man, not ridiculed, not mocked for being weak and dumb and pathetic and whipped. And that has a powerful effect on people because they they like that. They want to be a part of that and they support that because it, that is countercultural. So the story I want to tell coming up in, uh, in the 20 minutes, the top of the hour, is about Warren G. Harding. Warren G. Harding was nominated to be president, not because everyone thought he'd be a good president, but because he looked like a good president. He was attractive. He was a bit tall. He was strong. They said if you put him in a yoga, and a toga, then he could play the part of Caesar in any performance. That is literally the only reason that why they supported him to be president. And he won. you think I'm exaggerating, but I'm not. I will prove it coming up in 20 minutes. Warren G. Harding was nominated to be president because he looked the part. Trump's the same thing. Someone wrote me a uh, tweet the other day. They asked if I still think Trump's going to win in a landslide. Uh, And I said, yes. I said, there's uh, still a long way to go. I said, what do you think? And he wrote back. He said, quote, it's going to be ugly for Trump. Lack of money, lack of organization, and lukewarm party support. Okay, that analysis is the old school way of thinking. Same with the people who complain that Trump's speeches don't have enough policy specifics. Don't have enough details on how he's going to implement things. That doesn't matter. Now, again, it matters to you. And it should matter. But it doesn't. Are you with me? Specifics should matter. You should care about it. But no one else does. You're in the top 3% of people who care. So who's Trump going to appeal to you or the 97% of people who just want a strong guy, someone who says it like it is right. Like that's who he's appealing to. And there's way more people like that. And also this old school way of thinking, what the controversy in the beginning of the week was that Trump hasn't raised enough money. What, have you, has anyone been paying attention the last couple months during the primary? Money doesn't matter. Not when Trump's playing the game he's playing. Tell me again how Jeb Bush crushed Donald Trump because Jeb had a money advantage. Oh, that didn't happen. So the, what rules are we playing by here? Jeb, Ted, and Marco had way more money than Hillary has now against Trump. And Trump spent near zero, crushed them. So that doesn't mean anything anymore The money. The money doesn't mean anything. The lack of policy specifics doesn't mean anything. Lukewarm party support. like If anything, that's a benefit to Trump. So that guy is just like any other pundit on TV who says, oh, Trump has no chance. Look, he hasn't raised any money. Who cares? So what? Oh, uh, Trump um, uh, doesn't have any policy specifics. No one cares. You know what kind of stuff makes a difference? We live in a culture where men are ridiculed and humiliated. And Trump, the warrior alpha male, is a counter reaction to that. That's what wins elections. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Slater radio on Twitter, Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
3: You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.
0: Mike
2: Slater. Slater setters. So um, we're talking about the Brexit a second ago, immigration. And when when 52% of people who voted to leave London, leave England, excuse me, leave the EU, uh, 52%, sorry, of the people who voted to leave the EU, 52% of them said immigration was the top priority. And we talked about earlier how that's not because there's too many Polish people moving to London. It's Muslims, it's Islam. And they're way ahead of where we are here even on that. And they're just concerned. Uh, I want to play this clip here from Bill Maher last week talking about the Orlando terrorist attack.
4: And, and anytime somebody shoots up a gay nightclub, the question is is not was religion involved, it's what religion was involved.
3: What? And, Are you kidding me? And unfortunately, There's only one religion that is I was bombing
4: and terrorizing. just people. about to say that.
3: Okay. <laughs> there is. I was what? just
4: about to say, yes, exactly. Okay. There, I'm sorry, folks. That's the truth, too. I agree. We have to be real on both counts. Yes, the God hates people show up with placards and posters and they're despicable, but they don't show up with guns and bombs. That's just the world as it is today. Thank you. The answer is not to ban Muslims, however. The answer is to ask more of Muslims, I think.
5: And the answer is incontrovertibly, it. in my mind, that we need some kind of control on the weapons in this country.
2: Oh, my God. And then people go on and cheer. Um. So that guy, an immediate pivot away from the people using the guns to the guns themselves. Someone posted a meme on my Facebook wall the other day. Um, they put an AR-15 on, on top of the stove and propped it up and leaned a wooden spoon against it. And And the other side of the spoon was inside a pot and there were a couple of things inside the pot. And, and the word said, look, my AR-15 is making me dinner. If you raise them right, they won't shoot people. (laughs) Again, because everyone wants to make it seem as if the guns are doing the things, doing all these bad things. The guy who said that is retired Army Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. And I love this. His whole like, listen, we need some kind of regulations on guns. He says that as if there are currently no regulations on guns. Like they sell them at the farmer's market. Like you just walk down the sidewalk and there's guns scattered about everywhere. Like there's no gun laws in the country. And he's the very first person to say, huh. We should have like, all regulation on these things. There are piles of regulation. Mounds of regulations. And there's dozens of people in, in, in who are shot in Chicago every month and they have even a higher pile of regulations. And this guy's like, listen, I think we gotta have a, some gun regulation." <laughs> Give me a break, man. It'll never be enough. But anyway, back to the point. That's Bill Maher saying, listen, people, okay, well, l- this is what the problem really is. And the people of America, that audience, will refuse to admit it forever. But, um, the people of England, at the very least, are saying, oh, we just just slow down here for a second. Um, because our culture is changing here quickly. And I don't like the direction this is moving in. And it's not just Muslims. It's fine, whatever. But when you have 25% of British Muslims believe in Sharia law, like that's a grounds for, whoa, <laughs> right? I want to come back with, um, but anyway, they're just they're gonna ignore that. Progressives here are gonna ignore it as much as possible. You know, one reason why the left had to turn this into a gun thing, and this is the reason why they did that sit-in last week. The reason they turned the Orlando terrorist attack into a gun thing is because if it was a terrorist attack, they know that that would help Donald Trump. So that ties back into the last segment. Donald Trump, the the warrior alpha male, strong man. That the left knows that that's who he is, and they know that if there's a terrorist attack, that people are going to gravitate towards the strongman. So they had to do everything they could to make sure that this wasn't a terrorist attack, because that would help Trump. And when there is one or two more somewhere around the world, it will help Trump uh, as well. Coming up next, I want to tell the story of Warren G. Harding and how he became president. And the parallels to today are remarkable. We'll do that coming up next. On the Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
3: You're listening to Mike Slater.
0: Part of the next generation of talk radio. On
3: the Blaze Radio Network.
0: And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: America is the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. So I want to talk about Warren G. Harding, but really this is a story about how we don't make decisions based on reason and logic. Now you might, but you are a very rare exception to the rule. Most people do not make rational decisions, make emotional decisions. So what influences that? Because that's what is most influential. I'll give you a quick example, just just so we can all start on the same page. Nike does not have commercials where they explain why their sneakers are more durable and are made of a certain synthetic rubber that lasts longer than Reebok shoes. That's not what they do. They show you a video of LeBron dunking a basketball. And that like that's their are you with me? Right? They don't logically explain to you why Nike shoes are superior to the competition. No, they tell a story. They use emotion. That's marketing. That's how people make decisions. Cool. And just one quick story, and I don't have time to do this in full, so you just have to take my word for it. Maybe Maybe later we can do the full story of this. I don't know if we ever talked about it on this show. So, priming words, fascinating, fascinating science here. Priming words can make you change your behavior. So, scientists had a bunch of people uh, come in and take a test, and they thought that the people being studied thought that's what they were being studied on—how well they did on this test. So, some people were giving given a test that had a lot of a lot of words that. Had to do with being old, gray, wrinkly, stuff like that. Now, the people taking the test didn't say, Why do I have all these old things? Right? There are words like gray, I mean, just like subtle references to old. And then another group had words about youth, quick, young. Uh, you know, uh, you know, it, go with me. I, I'm trying. I'm drawing a blank here. Quick, young, um, uh, vibrant family. Blah 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 blah. Whatever. So the people taking the test thought that's what the test was. It wasn't. What they did after the test was they timed people how long it took them to walk down the hall to the door. The people who took the test with young sounding words. Walked down the hall quickly. The people who took the test with old words walked much slower down the hallway. They acted older. And you think it's later? Come on, there's no way. I'll give you another example. They did it again. This time they had words having to do with uh, patience. And then some people took a test with words about being rude. And they had the scientist and an actor talking with each other down the hall. And then when they were done with the test, they said, oh, go uh, talk to the instructor and and, um, they'll give you one more thing to do real quick. So they'd walk to the end of the hall. They'd see the instructor talking with an actor. And they timed the people on how long it took them to interrupt. If you were primed with words about being rude, they interrupted right away. But the people who were primed with words about being patient, most of them didn't interrupt for 10 minutes. And that's when they stopped it. They, they called it off. If you don't interrupt for 10 minutes, they would call the whole thing off because I'm going to wait around here all day. So, it's, I mean, again, maybe we could talk more about that later. But you may just have to trust me on this one. Ton of studies on how words can prime you for certain behavior. Fascinating. Okay. Put that aside for a minute. Warren G. Harding elected president, in 1920 Republican. No one knows anything about Warren G. Harding. No one ever talks about Warren G. Harding, but do you know how he became president? It goes back to 1899. He was in the globe hotel in Richmond, Ohio, and he was in the back garden of the hotel And he decided to get his shoes shined. So he's sitting up in the chair getting his shoes shined. And a guy came down and sat next to him. The guy who sat next to him was a lawyer and lobbyist at Columbus, the state capital. Bit of a mover and a shaker in the political world. Shrewd gentleman and a good judge of character. But also a master of stagecraft and marketing. Just like Trump. Now, Warren Harding at the time was a newspaper editor. The guy who sat down next to him, his name was Harry Doherty. Now, I want to read this real quick. Stick with me here. This will will make sense at the end, I promise. This is Warren G. Harding's biographer, Mark Sullivan, and he's writing about the time when these two gentlemen met while getting their shoes shined. Quote, Harding was worth looking at. He was about 35 years old at the time. His head features shoulders and torso. Had a size that attracted attention. Uh, Let's see here. He came to be known beyond his local world. The, the, The word Roman was occasionally used in descriptions of him. As he stepped down from the stand, his legs bore out the striking and agreeable proportions of his body and his lightness of his feet, his erectness, his easy bearing added to his impression of physical grace and virility. His suppleness combined with his bigness of frame and his large, wide-set, rather glowing eyes, heavy black hair, and markedly bronze complexion gave him some of the handsomeness of an Indian. And he goes on and talks about his, his friendliness and how his voice was resonant, masculine, and warm, and on and on and on. So at that moment, the lobbyist guy, Harry, Do- Harry Doherty, said this man would make a great president. Now, keep in mind, they never met each other. They don't know each other. Doherty doesn't know what Warren G. Harding's policies are. Doesn't know what his principles are. Doesn't know what he believes... But he said, that guy is going to make a good president. What? Was he a great leader of men? Actually, no. He was a gambler and a womanizer. It didn't matter. He looked the part. So he ran for office. Never distinguished himself in any office. He held uh, a newspaper writer, described his speeches as an army of pompous phrases moving over the landscape in search of an idea. In 1914, he was in the U.S. Senate. He did not vote on women's suffrage or prohibition, which are the two biggest issues of that time. Didn't vote at all. Sort of like Barack Obama in the the, uh, state Senate in Illinois. Didn't vote. Another biographer, his lusty black eyebrows contrasted with his steel gray hair to give the effect of force. His massive shoulders and bronzed complexion gave the effect of health. They said that if he put on a toga, he could play the part of Julius Caesar in any stage production. Now, Slater, where are you going with all this? Get to the point. In 1920, Doherty, the man that Warren Harding met while getting his shoes shined in a hotel. Doherty convinced Harding to run for president. Harding did not want to, but Doherty said he could win. Now, Doherty sometimes would say that Harding would make a great president, but most of the time he said Harding would make a great looking president. Do you see the difference there? Do you see the distinction? There's a difference between being a great president and being a great-looking president. And you're saying, Slater, I don't believe you. I don't think there's any difference at all. Or I would never be that shallow as to think that I'm only going to judge based on someone's looks for this incredibly important position. Well, let me tell you one thing. What if some guy ran for president this year who was five foot three and 120 pounds and you put him up on stage next to Donald Trump who's 6'2". You're telling me that you don't think deep down, uh, maybe not you, people would judge the five foot three gentleman over the six foot two gentleman? That five foot three gentleman, by the way, is uh, James Madison, the founder of our Constitution, the guy who wrote the darn thing. Five foot three, a buck twenty soaking wet. Do you think he could be elected president today? Five foot three? I don't think so. Warren G. Harding would make a great-looking president. So in 1920, he entered the convention in sixth place. Now, the race was deadlocked between the top two candidates, Major General Leonard Wood, who was a Medal of Honor recipient, and the governor of Illinois, Frank Orrin. On the 11th ballot, Warren G. Harding was the compromise candidate. Why? Because he looked the part. He won the nomination, won the presidency, served two years, died of a stroke, arguably the worst president in our history. Now, it's easy to hear the story of what started at a a chance encounter in a hotel shoeshine. But it's easy to hear the story and think, what was wrong with them? How could people back then vote for a guy just because he looked the part, just because he was handsome? Just because he was powerful looking. Just because he kind of looked like Caesar. Why wouldn't they go with the, 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 the distinguished governor of Illinois or the major general Medal of Honor recipient? Instead they go with a do-nothing senator from Ohio just because he was handsome? Yep. But don't think that we're much better. David Brooks, 2008. The first time that he met then-Senator Obama. He said, quote, I remember distinctly, we were sitting on his couches and I was looking at his pant leg and his perfectly creased pant. And I'm thinking, A, he is going to be president and B, he will be a very good president. Based. On the crease in his Pants. All right, I got to take a break here. I'll bring it to Trump next. Mike.
0: You're listening to Mike Slater
3: on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: So what does electing Warren G. Harding in 1920 have to do with Donald Trump today? Harding had the. A strong physical presence. Looked like a president. Looked like a leader of men. Again, people said he looked like an actor playing the part of Julius Caesar. People said he looked Roman. Now, the rational part of your brain says. So what? Who cares? Who cares if he looked like a leader? Was he? No, but it didn't matter. He looked the part. That is how powerful this force is in our brain. Looking the part is more important than being the best man for the part. And I know you're thinking, Slater, how can that be? And the reason you don't like this is because you have lived your life in a rational way. You try to be as rational and logical. You try to always do the right thing For all the right reasons. So making blind subconscious emotional decisions is contrary to everything you believe in. But I promise you that's how almost everyone makes decisions. Now I'm not saying this is a good thing. I'm just saying this is the way it is. Give you an example. Fortune 500 CEOs. So CEOs of the biggest 500 companies in America. Most are white men. But also most are tall. The average height of a CEO in a Fortune 500 company is six feet tall. That's three inches taller than the average height of a man in America. How can that be? Malcolm Gladwell puts it like this. In the U.S. population, so every every guy in the country, 14% of men are six feet or taller. Only 14%. So if you're six feet or taller, you're in, you're among only 14% of men. But among Fortune 500 CEOs... 58% are six feet or taller. And among the whole US population, only 3% of men are six foot two or taller, 3%. But among CEOs, 30% are six foot two or taller. How can that be? This is what Gladwell says. He says, we have a sense of what a leader is supposed to look like. And that stereotype is so powerful that when someone fits in, We simply become blind to the other considerations. Again, Trump is six foot two. And it's not just about CEOs, because you may be thinking, well, Slater, you're just looking at 500 CEOs. It's not a very good sample size. Uh, Okay, well, there have been studies that have found that every inch taller that a man is, they make about $800 a year more in salary. I'm not kidding. So a person who's six foot tall We'll make about, what, Uh, six, seven, yeah, about $5,000 more than someone who's five foot five. Around that, right? (laughs) Amazing. So over 30 years, we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars because you're taller. Now, of course, this is not a rule. This is just the general trend. But the point is, we think we're so rational about our decision making and hiring practices and, and things with money, right? We think we're rational when it comes to using money and spending money in business decisions, but we're not. We see tall people in swoon. <laughs> tall people get paid more money. If height had no difference, if height had no impact on how we view people's job performance, then CEOs, the average height of a male CEO would be five foot nine, right? But it's not. It's six feet and most of them are six foot, way over six feet and six feet two or taller. So height makes a difference. Why though? Now Trump is more than tall, right? My argument is not that Trump's going to win because he's tall. He has immeasurable prestige. There are no other political candidates that have their own giant airplanes. Let alone big buildings and supermodel wives. No other presidential candidates have ever commanded such attention. Ever. And I loved it Uh, a couple weeks ago, maybe a month ago. Trump said he was going to go to Scotland. And all the newspaper articles talked about how he was taking a timeout from his campaign to go to Scotland. And these are people who fundamentally don't get it. He was not taking a time out from his campaign to go to Scotland. That was his campaign because do you know why he went to Scotland and he's, he was there on Friday. I don't know if he's still there, but he was there on Friday. Do you know why to open up his own championship golf course? Okay. How many other presidential candidates get to open up their own presidential golf course and then get all the prestige and publicity that comes with that? No one ever. Okay. But that's what he does. And that's his great advantage. So tie this into what we talked about in the last hour, the humiliation of males over the last couple of decades, right? Men are sick of being the butt of jokes in pop culture with the doofus dad and all that. And men are going to react to that by voting for the warrior alpha male who doesn't get pushed around. And I'll tell you, when push does come to shove, policies don't matter. And I hate saying that. Please believe me. I hate saying that. Because, of course, they really do matter, right? They matter to me. They matter to you. They matter to reality. But to most people, they don't. And people are going to vote for the alpha warrior male over the nagging mother-in-law. I guarantee it. When they're in the booth, no one's going to be thinking about policies. They're going to be thinking about what feels good and feels right. All right, there may be some skeptical folks listening. Um, You may be one of them. Let me do one more segment along these lines. I want to tell you the story of margarine and how, how margarine sales went from nothing to beating butter for a time. How did that happen? I'm going to tell you what they changed And you'll be amazed. And again, it applies to politics just the same. We'll do it next. Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
0: This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio. On
3: the Blaze Radio Network.
0: On the Blaze Radio Network.
2: Slider of crusaders. Thanks for being here. So, last couple months, we've been talking about the importance of marketing and the influence of it and making a brand and how Donald Trump has a brand, Hillary doesn't. Donald Trump has a message, Hillary doesn't. We could talk about tax policy and immigration policy and foreign policy, and we do, because it's important. But... When analyzing who's going to win this election, it's not. Because most people, even if it's subconsciously, most people vote based on branding and marketing, which Trump is the master at. We've talked on this show before about how breakfast became known as the most important meal of the day. How did that happen? Marketing. How lobster went from being a disgusting Bottom feeding nuisance because so many of them would wash up on the shore. They would feed them to prisoners. Lobster. They would feed lobster prisoners three times a day to the point where prisoners would write home about how horrible it is. They keep feeding us lobster to becoming a delicacy. How? How? And now people on death row, their final meal, the last meal, they want it to be lobster. How did that happen? How did that change? We've talked before about how a fish distributor in Los Angeles changed the name of the poorly selling Patagonian toothfish to the Chilean sea bass. That was his third attempt to rename that fish from the Patagonian toothfish. No one wants a Patagonian toothfish, but a Chilean sea bass. Ooh. (laughs) Ooh. Same thing. Let me share another story here. One of the greatest marketers in history, Louis uh, Louis Cheskin, born in Ukraine, came to America in like the 50s. He was the first person to realize that packaging makes a huge difference in how much people like the product that's inside the packaging. And he worked mostly with food. So margarine was one of his big successes. So in the late 1940s, margarine was not popular. And the people who made it Couldn't figure out why. So they worked on changing the consistency. They tinkered with the flavor. And they did everything they could think of to change margarine so that people would like it more. But they couldn't figure it out. So they hired Lois Cheskin. And he was the first person to say, make it yellow. At the time, margarine was white. Butter was yellow. Margarine was white. He said, make it yellow so it looks more like butter. Then he said, wrap it in foil. Foil back then was associated with high quality. So wrap it in foil and and call it imperial margarine. So check this out. This is wild to me. In taste tests, get this, in blind taste tests, butter beet margarine every time. White margarine. The pre Lois Cheskin margarine. Lewis, sorry, Lewis Cheskin margarine. So, butter beats margarine every time. But when you wrap the margarine in foil and make it yellow and call it imperial margarine and put a crown on the packaging, margarine beat butter every time in a taste test. How can that be? How can the packaging and the naming and the branding make it so people are like, oh, this thing that I previously didn't like is now delicious? How is that possible? That's how our brain works. It's not rational. Do you know they, they've done taste tests? People think peaches take, taste better when they come out of a glass jar. This one's even crazier. Think of your, uh, your favorite ice cream when you go to the store and you buy like a half gallon. People like ice cream more when it comes out of a cylindrical container than a rectangle. Try that one on for size. So, you know, Edie's ice cream out here in the West, it's called, uh, br- uh, uh, dr- dry, drier, dry, 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 something, that, ah, whatever. Edie's where I grew up. Um, that comes in the cylindrical container, like the round container. So they've done taste tests where they'll flip it. They'll put the, they'll, they'll put a ice cream in a not as good ice cream in the cylindrical container and the Edie's ice cream in the rectangle container and and taste test oh i like i like this ice cream in the in the round and right and they're like oh i don't like this other ice cream it's in the like huh how does that make a difference people like ice cream more when it's in a cylindrical container what are you talking about i'll give you one more do you remember the pepsi challenge So the Pepsi challenge was real, by the way. Um, So they did a blind taste test. And you take a sip of Pepsi and a sip of Coke. And most of the time, people chose Pepsi. So Pepsi was right. I mean, those commercials were true. And Coke did their own taste tests behind the scenes. And yeah, Pepsi won 56% of the time. That's a lot. And Coke was really worried that it was just a matter of time. As people realized that Pepsi tasted better, that they would drink Pepsi, not Coke. So that's why... Coke panicked and developed new Coke, which was a disaster. And That's a fun story, too, but we can share that for another day. So here's the fatal flaw that Coke made. Two things. First, no one drinks a sip of soda. Pepsi's better if you have a sip of it because it's sweeter. But people prefer Coke when they drink the whole can. So the Pepsi challenge was a sip of each. But if you did a challenge where you drank the whole can of each people would prefer Coke. That's first thing. Second thing, people don't drink soda blind. You don't just drink a soda without knowing what it is. When you drink a soda, you see the packaging, you see the branding, you see the logo and our brain associates those things as we're tasting it. So when you drink a Coke, It may connect you with childhood, with memories, with different places. Coke has a huge worldly brand, right? When you drink a Coke, there's almost like a communal, a subliminal communal experience to it. And you're saying, there's no way that's true. Listen, people like ice cream in a round container more than a rectangular one, (laughs) right? That's what we're talking about here. Those are our brains. So in a blind taste test, people prefer Pepsi but we don't drink soda blind in a taste test where people see what they're drinking. They prefer Coke. So to bring this all back to Trump, cause that's what this is about. He's not selling policies. He never has. And he never will. He's selling a brand. He's selling an image. He's selling a whole package. I guarantee you if we did a blind taste test between Trump and Ted Cruz, Cruz would win. It's no doubt. If we did a blind taste test between Trump and Scott Walker, people would choose Scott Walker. People would look at the resumes of Scott Walker and Ted Cruz over Trump and say, Oh yeah, like that's who should be president." But we don't elect presidents that way. We elect the whole package, the entire brand. And when you compare the messaging, the branding and marketing, of Trump and Clinton. Trump wins every time. Trump is Coke. Just like when he won the nomination. Remember that picture they took of him when he won the nomination that day in his private jet? Eating a Big Mac and a Diet Coke? Do you think that was by accident? <laughs> Marketing, branding, imaging, messaging. Trump's the master at it. So to bring it all the way back to the hour, if you've been with us the whole hour, talked about Warren G. Harding and how he was getting a shoe shined behind a hotel in Ohio in 1899 and a guy sat next to him who was a marketer and stagecraft master and lobbyist and said, that man looks like a great president. <laughs> Didn't know anything about him. 20 years later, he was president. And the only reason he won is because he looked the part. 1-888-900-3393. 93 we will have a few minutes when we get back. I'll tell the story because I mentioned it in passing of how breakfast became the most important meal of the day. Uh, listen, I love breakfast more than anything and I will defend breakfast till my dying day. But it's not necessarily the most important meal. Of the day. It's important. You should eat it. But it's just marketing too. I'll tell that story next. Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word
0: mike slater
3: on the blaze radio network
0: part of the next generation of talk radio this is mike slater
2: Letter, I was talking about uh, imaging, branding, marketing, these things that matter way more than policy. But and then, Please don't get me wrong, because I all, every time I talk about this, I get emails from people saying, how dare you not think that policy matters? Policy is all that should matter. You care about it. I care about it. We try to understand it, and we always will. But I'm analyzing this from 30,000 feet and how people make decisions, and they do not make decisions based on policy. Again, my example of Nike commercials do not tell you about why their shoes are better than Reebok. They show you a video of LeBron dunking a basketball. They tell a story. They use emotion. They use imaging, branding, marketing for you to uh, make financial decisions about what shoe to buy. Same thing with politics. Uh, Let's go to Brian in uh, Chicago. What's going on, Brian?
6: Hey, good afternoon. To you, man. Uh, I just want to tell you a quick story. Uh, I'm a member of a labor union, and when Barack Obama ran for the Senate the uh, Democratic Party had a primary for the Senate primary they had a debate at my union hall hmm. and it there was a very large field I think there was like eight competitors and there was a female that was a local talk show host that was kind of nutty and goofy but kind of attractive and that's kind of the main reason I went uh, so anyway so I went there and I and I witnessed it I'm kind of a political junkie anyway and that was really the first time I had uh, seen Barack Obama in person Wow! and it was funny because he's a relatively tall man and he had on a very very expensive suit and he just stood there and looked very calm and regal and smiled a lot and just spoke very softly and confident like you know he had just gotten the word from God and he just stood out above all the other competitors I mean head and shoulders. It was just hmm. unbelievable. And you look at the guy and you just thought like, Well, this guy is you know, he was like a movie star. I mean he was you can you just knew that he was gonna go far and wow. he just had that vibe. And I mean I I was standing in line to shake his hand. I mean I, I almost got to, but then he was sworn by like eight black women all at once <laughs> before, I, <laughs> before I could blink my eye. And uh but it was it it it, it yeah. goes right in Line with what you're talking about, it's just the vibe that people give off, their demeanor, and how they express themselves, you know, and, and to be honest, you could say the same thing about Ronald Reagan,
2: right? Mm-hmm. Oh, sure.
6: And that, that's just a story I wanted to share. I mean, the minute no, I, I think saw that's... the guy and I listened to him speak for 10 minutes, it's like... I knew this guy was going to win the election and this guy was going to go far. He would be, at the very least, a national celebrity.
2: Really I mean, fascinating. Because he was be
6: president so soon.
2: But sure. I knew he'd be a yeah, major
6: he, figure in Democratic politics.
2: Yeah, and here we are, how many years later? And, I mean, do you remember what he said? Or do you remember more? I mean, it sounds like you really remember how he made you feel and what you saw and, and the vibe and all that stuff. And, and that's what resonates, right? Yeah. More yeah, than the what. I
6: mean, yeah, he just looked confident and supreme compared to everybody else
2: yeah really interesting what an awesome perspective because you saw him so long ago brian man thanks for calling in thanks for listening i appreciate you thanks dude have an awesome day so uh i got two and a half minutes let me do this real quick because i promised uh breakfast how it became the most important meal of the day so uh, edward bernays who was actually the nephew of sigmund freud um 1920 the beech nut packing company reached out to Bernays marketer uh, to boost their bacon sales. So Bernays went out and found a doctor and he said, Hey doc, do you agree? And this is the quote. Do you agree that a hearty breakfast better than a light breakfast to replace energy lost uh, by the body at night is better for you, right? A hearty breakfast better than a light breakfast. That's the question. And the doctor said, yeah, yeah of course. So he then asked that question to 5,000 doctors. Sent out a questionnaire and worded it just like that. Do you believe that it's better to have a hearty breakfast more than a light breakfast to replace energy lost by the body at night? Sent it out to 5,000 doctors. 4,500 doctors wrote back, yes, a hearty breakfast is better than a light one. So the Bernays and his PR people framed this as a news story, not an advertisement. It was a news story. So they pitched it to all the news people as a news story. And that's how bacon became known as the most important meal of the day. And it was all done to increase beechnut bacon sales. <laughs> that's it. Now, Edward Bernays was an amazing marketer. He. So so a quick little story. There was a journalist who went to Germany and spent some time with uh, Goebbels. Goebbels was the minister of propaganda in Nazi Germany. And in Goebbels' library was a book written by Bernays. It was called Crystallizing Public Opinion. So this is from Bernays' autobiography. Goebbels was using my book as a basis for his destructive campaign against the Jews of Germany. This shocked me. Obviously, the attack on the Jews of Germany was no emotional outburst by the Nazis, but a deliberate, planned campaign. Wow. Using the same sales marketing techniques that Bernays used for bacon. So the same marketing that's used to make margarine taste better and ice cream taste better and all the things we just talked about. Used. To manipulate the people in political campaigns. Why wouldn't it be? Mike Slater Show. Spread the word.
0: You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Final hour. Goes fast. So I am uh, doing a little uh, backyard wood project this weekend. I love uh, making things out of wood. I feel like a man. Measure something, cut it. Screw it together, perfect, fits perfectly, ah, feels good. I love it. So I'm making a hanging day bed. Anyway, so, if you've ever done anything like this before, uh, you've heard of a plumb line. A plumb line. Now, uh, in the South, they use the word plumb all the time. I'm plumb tired. When I first heard that when I moved to Tennessee, I said, Huh? You're what? Plum-tuckered It's actually how I heard it the first time. Plum-tuckered. I'm plum-tuckered. So, huh? Uh, or you can insult someone. Uh, uh, Charlie, half a bubble off plum. <laughs> half a bubble off plum. Meaning j- j- just off a bit. Just something's not quite. Just, just half a bubble off plum. So a plumb line is a string with a weight attached to it, and the weight makes the string uh, straight. And if you're a little bit off at the top of the plumb line, so if you're building something and you're a little bit off at the top, then as you keep going, you're going to be a little more off, a little more off, and then you're ways off, and then you're not even close when you get down to the bottom. And it all started because you were just a little bit off, just a tiny, tiny bit off at the top. That's our culture. That's our politics. That's everything we do. If we're a little bit off at first and you just keep going, you blink and you realize you're way off. Maybe another analogy to make it easier is let's say you had to walk, you had to walk your point A and you have to walk to point B, which is a mile away. Okay, you got to go to point B, which is a mile away. It's a straight line. It's one mile straight ahead. But once you start walking, you can't readjust your direction. Okay, so you you figure out exactly the exact direction you want to go. And you just walk straight. You can't change. You can't at all. You'll realize that even if you're a a half a degree off, that's a a mile away, you're not even close. To, the, to point B so you have to line up perfectly in the beginning every degree of difference makes a huge difference in the end all right I bring this up again because this is our culture uh, because I want to play this clip here this is uh, Tucker Carlson talking to someone from the Brady campaigns so this is one of the big anti gun groups now this is a really important clip because it proves how if we don't define our terms or if we don't force others to define their terms, then we will be off just a bit in the beginning, right? You're, you're going to be off just a little bit because we don't know if we're talking about the same thing, right? So you have to define terms. We have to make sure we're talking about the same thing. If we don't in the beginning, then we will result, it will result in something way off at the end. Here it is.
4: Backseat to the war on guns. Joining us now is Dan Gross. He's president of the Brady Campaign and Center to Prevent Gun Violence. He joins us on set. Dan, thanks for coming on this morning. Good to be here, Tucker. So what's an assault rifle? I mean, it's not a question of talking about certain kinds of guns. It is, though. Hold on, wait. The president has said, and Democrats in Congress say, that we should ban assault weapons or not let terrorists get their hands on assault weapons. So before we proceed, let's define it specifically. What is an assault weapon?
2: No, I'm... I'm Isn't that amazing? Tucker Carlson asks straight up, what's an assault weapon? Well, you know, listen, it's not about... (laughs) <laughs> that's someone who doesn't want to define his terms, obviously. So assault weapon isn't defined and then, uh, and has no interest, right? So you can see how important this is from the very beginning. He has no interest in defining what it is they want to ban or regulate. How can that end? Well, we're off plumb already. We're off plumb. Now they'll throw around scary words like "weapon of war." I think you'll hear that here in a second. Maybe I'm wrong, but I've been in the Second Amendment thing for a while. I've never heard that word used before. "Weapons of war." I've never heard that. Maybe I just I'm just noticing it the first time, but I've never. That's I think that's a new one that they must have focused grouped as a successful word that people don't like. Ooh, weapons of war. I mean, we don't. The civilians shouldn't have weapons of war. But what what does that mean? Because I can't buy the guns that our service members use overseas. No one can. We haven't been able to buy an automatic weapon since 1934. So the left wants to go after weapons of war without defining that. And they want to go after assault rifles without defining it. They just want to make it seem scary without ever having to define it. So anyway, that's why Tucker Carlson did such a good job with this because no, no, man, define what you're talking about so that we can have a specific conversation. Let's make sure our plumb line is straight. Here's the rest.
5: Not here to define what assault weapons are. No. I mean, we, can we, we are, it? have yeah. you heard anybody define it? I, we are against certainly weapons of war that are
4: intended only to take human lives. But let's talk about what I war. wanted to talk about here. Which well, but is hold what, on, wait, 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 hold on. The whole conversation about guns this week is assault weapons. That's this is a weapon of war. It's true. scary. That's absolutely not Do you, true. The well, you whole can see that you can't make meaningful it's, it's law not, unless no. you define your Tucker, terms. It's not the
5: conversation that's happening in Congress. It's not the practical legislation okay. that's being proposed. So we should talk about that because there's going to be a vote okay. Monday. We're talking about what we can do to keep any kind of gun, an right. assault weapon or a handgun, out of the hands of people with hate in their hearts, people intent on doing harm. And there's a
4: lot that we can do, starting with the legislation that's okay. being proposed Okay, well, let's on, address day. that then. I'm interested that you wouldn't define it, but, but let's move on to that. The legislation proposed would prevent people on the terror watch list or on the no-fly list from buying firearms. So they would be stripped of a constitutional right without due process, Mm. do you think it's fair for the U.S. government to punish people who haven't been proved to have committed wrongdoing. So it's ironic
5: that uh, a lot of the same people who claim to be strongest on terrorism are in favor of defending the rights of people who are known and suspected terrorists. Hold on, how guns. can a person be a known
4: terrorist if he's not convicted? Because there, I thought our whole justice system was based on the notion the government can't just suspect you, they have to prove you of wrongdoing, don't so, they? So are you saying there shouldn't be a no-fly list? I'm... Uh, that's a separate argument. Well, no, why? I think look, But process. here's what I happen to think. Yeah. Since you asked, yeah. if we don't think you're trusted to fly, if we think you're so dangerous you can't get in an airplane, what the hell are you doing living in my neighborhood? You should be in jail or you should be deported. You can have that so conversation. Sure, okay, so you should have that conversation. But I want to ask you a oh, basic no, question a about no, American really? justice. Do you think the government should punish people without proving them guilty? I think if somebody Apparently is deemed you do. to
5: be a known and suspected terrorist, that they shouldn't be able to deemed walk by into home. A guy- Why don't you let me finish? Because it's a basic question. <laughs> because if somebody is a known and suspected terrorist, the same kind of person you wouldn't want known to, to live by, so by Let home. me finish one sentence, please. Okay. If a known and suspected terrorist somebody who you don't think should live in your neighborhood, and you're prepared to make that decision, you think that same person should be able to walk into a gun store and buy a Should gun. Should the person be allowed and to that's vote? where
4: the American public, that's where the American like, public I'm, stands. I'm, look, you do this for a living, so I think it's fair yeah. to ask you a question that's a little bit deeper than just what a poll might reflect, uh. which is... <laughs> What other rights should we take away from people we suspect of being Listen, bad people? This is what I think, and this is what the American public thinks, and we agree. I
5: I'm not reading polls. Think. I'm telling you, I, I started by saying this is what I think. I think that there's so much more that we can do to keep guns out of the hands of the people who have been convicted of violent... Crimes, you have, people who are domestic abusers, known and suspected terrorists. It
4: starts by going into by passing this law that's being violated. People who have debated, not been convicted of anything ought to have their Second Amendment rights taken I'm away. I'm saying people who have been deemed by our government to be suspected terrorists by the
5: Attorney General by, by the investigations that go into these people. Oh, that's what this law proposes so on the basis of suspicion. On the basis of suspicion, you want to kick
4: these people out of your neighborhood. No. That's what you just said. No, I'm saying you if, said if you we don't believe want to have they're them live too in a dangerous. Yeah, but I think you should be convicted before being punished because I'm an American. Well, listen, great. To, I'm sorry to right, so stop
2: there. So you hear there, assault weapon wasn't defined in the beginning. And then terror watch list was never defined at the end. So if you can't define these important things that we're talking about, it will never end well. Now, do we I don't do we need to do terror watch list for the millionth time? I'll do it real quick. Here's why this is a problem. There's no standard for being put on the list they don't tell you if you're on the list and there's no way of getting off the list. So I don't know what it takes to get on the terror watch list. So for my job, I look up ISIS videos so I can tell you what's going on. Is anyone who goes to an ISIS website, a suspected terrorist? So just cause I go to an ISIS video. Now I can't buy a gun. Like what's the standard now you can say, well, he- this is the standard. And if you meet this, then you're on the list. Oh, okay. That's that's something we can have that conversation, but they don't even want to have that conversation. It's just, you're on the list. Can't buy a gun. No, 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 <laughs> Actually, I will tell you a quick little story here. I'll tell you more about this next week. Um, San Diego, I'm sure other police departments do as well have a, uh, what's it called? A gang, a gang identification list. So it's sort of like the terror watch list where if you are a suspected Gang member, you're put on this list. Now, there also happens to be a law in California that says if you're on a, in a gang and you know about a crime, you can be convicted as well. So two guys in San Diego were put on this gang watch list, even though they weren't in a gang. Someone in a gang committed a crime. These two guys were arrested because they were on the list as having been a member of the gang as well. Now, they weren't in the gang. They were put on the list because a cop saw them talking to gang members once, eight years ago, but they were convicted of a crime because they happened to be on the same list as someone who actually committed a crime. That's real life. A really great parallel to this where you're put on a terror watch list because we have no idea why and what a terror was defined as terrorist either too. I wonder how many people on that list are uh, not, not Muslim. Don't have Muslim names, right? What's terror? How's terrorism defined in like, We don't know one knows. No one's talking about this stuff. So we can't have that be the standard. All right. So to get back to plumb line, I think you can see that if you're a little bit off in the beginning, then it's not going to end well. And if we have this standard now where <laughs> if you're put on a list, then you can't buy a gun. It is not a big leap from that to if you're on a list then you don't have First Amendment rights. And if you're on the left and you're rolling your eyes at that, that the idea, if you're rolling your eyes at the idea that someone, that the government, can take away your First Amendment rights because you're on a list, just imagine President Trump. President Trump, who terrifies you, right? President Trump, who people on the left and right say he's literally Hitler. Think about what he can do to you without the personal protections that the constitution gives you. And now go ahead and make the argument that just because you're on a list means you don't have a constitutional right anymore. Come on. Now let's not get sidetracked. None of these things would have stopped any of the most recent terrorist attacks anyway, but we got to do something right as we, as they always say, one, eight, eight, nine hundred 33, 93 Mike Slater show, the blaze radio network, spread the word.
3: This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.
0: Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: Slater, thanks for being here. So one reason why so many people uh, don't define their terms is uh, they don't know what they're talking about. Uh, so, so this example here, we're talking about people on the left not defining their terms when it comes to gun control. So again, one reason they do that is they don't know what they're talking about. So they couldn't define the terms if they wanted to. Everyone in the media is clueless when it comes to guns. Like, like they've never shot a gun. Clueless. Now forget about the guy from the Daily News who said he got temporary PTSD when he shot an AR-15. On my local show, by the way, we talked to uh, the dad who made a video of his 7-year-old daughter shooting an AR-15 for the first time. I love that video. It's on my Facebook page. And uh, she shoots it, and he goes, How'd it feel? And she goes, Pretty good. And then gets back to shooting the rest. Right? <laughs> it's a 7-year-old girl. And the, the Daily News guys, said, oh, oh, PTSD my shoulders bruised. I can't, oh, come on. Anyway, so Vox has a uh, chart they created with an AR-15 and it has a uh, line to all the different parts you can buy, right? All the different parts of the AR-15. And one of the parts listed in this chart is grenade launcher. Grenade launcher. Okay. (laughs) Now, If there's anyone at Vox who knows anything about anything, that person would have said, guys, 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 it's not a grenade launcher. Yeah, it is. No, no, no. What they're referring to is called a 37 millimeter launcher. And they're so ignorant that they assume that it's a grenade launcher. But again, since 1934, you can't buy grenades. So a 37 millimeter launcher, and I'm sure there's someone listening who can tell us more. It's for launching a flare Or something called a bird banger. So you put this cartridge in the launcher. You press a button. It goes, but there's no injury. I mean, it's not a it's not a bullet. It's not a grenade. It's for like clearing birds or animals from a field, right? So you you got you you launch it. You go, and the birds fly away, right? (laughs) And Vox calls it a grenade launcher. It's awesome. I just, I feel like if someone tasked me with reporting on something that I don't know anything about, I would ask to do something else or I would study the heck out of it, right? Why pretend? And the media does the same with religion. They're just classically ignorant. Do you remember when, uh, I forget if it was Ted or his dad, Raul? But he was at a church, and he said something like, uh, "I pray for the body of Christ to rise up and save our country." Or something like that. And it was at a church, and and all the pundits on the media the next day they said, "Oh, oh my gosh, Ted Cruz wants Jesus to raise from the dead." It's unbelievable. Did you hear what crazy nutbag Ted Cruz said? He wants Jesus Christ to raise from the dead. Oh my gosh. And it was the whole day. And I remember thinking, well, first of all, he already did. It's kind of the point. Second, body of Christ just means church. But if you've never heard that term before, it seems super scary and weird, but it's it's not. It's just church. Not the actual body of Christ. It's a church. Like I remember there was one woman, Some I forget what, what channel, but she said... She was talking about that and she goes, I know a lot of people who were offended by that comment. No, you don't. (laughs) No, you don't. Because anyone who knows what they're talking about, you would never be offended by that. There's nothing to be offended by. The Bible talks about the body of Christ. There's nothing. nothing New York Times also wrote that Easter is the celebration of when Jesus resurrected into heaven. No, it's not. New York times back in 2010 wrote about what motivated the tea party and the writer talked about the tea party ideology and how uh, we had to, to reach back into her words, the dusty bookshelves for long dormant ideas. And we resurrected once obscure texts by dead writers as if that makes it wrong inherently. But, one of these writers that has long dormant and dead, Friedrich Hayek. Hayek won a Nobel Prize in 1974 and he died way back in 1992. And his most popular book, Road to Serfdom, has never been out of print. Right? So that's, those are the crazy ideas that the Tea Party used to make their ideology. How can, how can someone report on something they know nothing about? I don't even, why do they pretend to? Right? Why pretend? Worst example of all time because I got to run. The senior justice reporter for Huffington Post was in Ferguson. The senior justice reporter, not just some random guy, the senior justice reporter. And he was walking around and he took a picture of something he saw on the ground and he said, he put it on Twitter and he wrote, I believe these are rubber bullets. Can anyone confirm? They were earplugs. They were the bright orange foam earplugs that you wear usually when you go to a gun range. Obviously, this guy's never been to a gun range, doesn't know what they wear. I, th- I, th- I think these are rubber bullets. Why do we listen to them? Why do we listen to them? I'll tell you, the people in D.C. are just as ignorant, and they write laws that change our lives. Mike Slater showed the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
0: Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: Mike Slater. So we mentioned it earlier, Trump in uh, Scotland, and it was announced like a month ago, and everyone in the media who doesn't get it, they said, uh, oh, Trump taking time out of his campaign to to travel to Scotland. It's like, no, 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 that is his campaign, because he's going there to open up his new championship golf course. So here on CNN, they're talking about, uh, but they're trying to spin it as Trump promoting golf course as Brexit re as England reeling from Brexit or something like that, like trying to make it seem as if like uh, he's fiddling while, while Rome burns kind of thing. Right. <laughs> but no one, no one cares. First of all the Brexit is not that big of a deal. Everyone's freaking out about it. Um, but all people hear from that headline and this conversation is that Trump is opening up his own new golf course, which is again, goes back to this prestige, which is his brand. And we talked all about that in the uh, last hour. Um, I just kind of realized that I don't know if we did end up talking about the no-fly list and the, the that whole proposal yet. Um, so l- let's do this real quick here. Um, first of all, it's really important that we get this straight because we are fighting a war against Omitted. Um, I don't know if you know about this terrorist group, Omitted. Uh, but when the Justice Department released the tapes, uh, the scramscript of the tape from the terrorist attack in Orlando, he said, I pledge allegiance to Omitted. Uh, I pledge allegiance to omitted. May God protect him on behalf of omitted. Uh, so I don't know if that's how it's pronounced over there, but that's the new group. And it took a couple of days later and they said, all right, fine. Or a couple of hours later. And they're like, all right, fine. It's ISIS. <laughs> As if people were wondering, people were like, I pledge allegiance to omitted. Wow. What, who, who are they? Southern Baptist convention, I bet. That's what, that's who that guy was, right? Southern Baptist. Mm-hmm. I knew it. The heck. Ian Tuttle said, imagine if 75 years ago, the president said, I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by omitted on Sunday, December 7th, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and omitted. Wow. Well, we don't want to, you know, give them any propaganda ammunition. Like, what are you talking about? Anyway, uh, no-fly list. So, a couple things. First, the no-fly list and the terror watch list, which are two different things, we'll get to that, was never intended to take away someone's constitutional rights. This is a great case of bureaucratic creep. The no-fly list and the terror watch list are tools for monitoring security threats. They do not have the safeguards that are necessary to protect our rights. Mostly due process, which says that the government can't take away your rights just because they want to. If they want to take away a right of yours, there's a process, there's a process for it, an official, proper, and outlined way of doing things. This is in response to a king who says we're going to behead you because you committed this crime. And the person would say, "Uh what? I what I didn't commit a crime." "Yes you did. We said you did. you uh, beheaded." Right? That's why we created due process, fair trial, all that stuff. This is our American judicial system, and the US Senate just wants to say, "Man, eh, you're on a list." That's enough, right? <laughs> That's enough due process. They were just on a list. How do you get on the list? Ah, I don't
1: know. They
2: put you on it. How do I know if I'm on it? Ah, how do I get off it? Whatever. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not how that works. Just because you're on a list doesn't mean you don't have a, one of your constitutional rights anymore. Come on, Give me a break. It's unbelievable that we're even proposing this. And again, if you want to prove to someone who thinks that this is a great proposal because it does. I will grant you. It sounds good on the surface, right? If you don't think about it, it sounds good, right? If you just hear it, you're like, yeah, no fly. If you're on the no fly list, you can't buy a gun. That makes sense. But if you think about it for two seconds, then it's a horrible idea. And that person who doesn't want to think about it, just have them imagine president Trump who we're, we are told is literally Hitler and he will pass a decree one day On you, right? So that person you're talking to is like, yeah, no fly list, can't buy guns, great idea. Say, all right, fine. President Trump comes into office, makes up a list that takes away one of your rights. You okay with that? Of course not. You will be screaming due process from the gallows. So protect it now, as we talked about at the top of the hour, the plumb line. Don't let the plumb line get a little bit off. And that's what this is. Oh, it's just, listen to fight terrorism okay and it's only a second amendment right and it's a very stringent list <laughs> no it's none of those things alright so second thing and I sort of mentioned this you don't know if you're on the list you don't know how to get on the list and uh there's no way to get off it so that's going to be the same with the gun ban list you'll just be on it and you won't know until you go buy a gun and then it's going to be impossible to get off it all with no due process on it. that uh, let's mm, let's play this clip. a final point if we had this bill right that, that that they're sitting in for right they're sitting on the floor or they were they were sitting on the floor of the house which is just like the most petulant childish thing i've ever seen it's un so, actually, let me let me talk about that for one second this democrat in. so we talk a lot quite a bit about things going on on college campuses on this show if what happened in college campuses stayed on college campuses And just kids acting like kids and saying goofy things and doing goofy things and whatever because they're kids. Uh, We wouldn't talk about it because who cares. But all that stuff on college campuses is seeping off into the real world in a ton of different ways. The sit-in is another great example. That sit-in was the exact same thing you would see on a college campus with a bunch of college kids blocking the entrance to the president's office or something, and that's the type of stuff that – you get pepper sprayed for, right? But 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 it's that technique has seeped off college campuses, and now you're seeing grown adults sitting on the floor, like literally on the like what, what are you what are you doing? I'm not one for putting on airs, but there's something to be said for having a little dignity when you're <laughs> you're, you're a congressman. No. Anyway, I, I, the bill that they were trying to get or whatever wouldn't have stopped this terrorist. This is the senator from Connecticut who's been leading this ridiculous charge. His name's Chris Murphy, 858.
0: But you specifically are pushing a bill and have been pushing a bill, and it will be voted on on Monday, to close the so-called gun show loophole. Um, would that have done anything to stop the massacre
6: in Orlando? S- so it, 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 may, yeah, it may have in the sense that if you partner it together with a bill that stops terrorists but, from But, but wait heads. a minute, he, he didn't buy those guns at a,
0: at, at, at a, at a gun show. And he would have passed the background. He did pass a background check. He did pass a background check. What I'm trying to get at is, is we hear every time there, there's one of these terrible tragedies, there's these proposals. Your proposal would have done nothing in the case of Orlando. It would have done nothing to stop the, the killing in San Bernardino. And in fact, was is unrelated to the killing in in, in Newtown.
6: So, so, so why? I mean, why? I mean. Why are we focusing on things that have nothing to do with the massacres that we are responding? Well, so f- first of all, we can't get into that trap. I disagree. I think if the, this proposal had been into effect, it may have stopped this shooting. But we can't get into the trap in which we are forced to defend <laughs> least... the proposal simply because it didn't stop the
2: last tragedy. Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. What an amazing answer. This. Okay. Hey, uh, Senator, uh, you propose this law because in response to this thing that happened, but if the law was in effect, it wouldn't have stopped that bad thing from happening. So what are we doing? What are we doing? And that reporter there was that. That's what he was saying. He was like, w- w- wow. <laughs> "What? What? what are you meant to say is what are you doing? What is the point of this? Think about this in a less emotional context. Let's, uh, let's remove some of the, the terms here. Let's say, let's say you, uh, every night, you stub your toe on the corner of the bed. Okay, you get up, go to the bathroom. You stub your toe. Oh my god! Now uh, it's annoying, and uh, you could do a few things about that. You could move the bed a little bit in one direction. You could do that. You could make sure you just you take a wider, wider turn, walk a different path. Maybe you could put a light at the end of your bed, Night light a glow-in-the-dark sticker on the corner of your bed. I don't don't know. I'm spitballing. There's different options. But no one would say, man, I keep banging my toe on the bed. I better stop parking my car in the garage. Like, what? Man, I keep banging my toe on the bed. It's so annoying. I better use a different dishwasher detergent. Okay, you can do that. But to suggest that any of those two things would have prevented you from stubbing your toe is delusional. And they're living in a state of delusion when they're like, we must do this proposal. Why? It would have stopped the last attack. No one. uh, I believe it would have. What? Keep in mind this, the U.S. Senate, right? That's pretty rare. There's only hundred of them. These are the best and the brightest. And the senator says, "Well, I I believe that closing the gun show loophole would have stopped this terrorist attack." Uh, but sir, he didn't buy the gun at a gun show. Well, whatever. Now listen, if there were no such thing as gun shows, let's say gun shows didn't exist, they're banned. We banned all gun shows. Still wouldn't have prevented this last terrorist attack in Orlando because he didn't buy the gun from a gun show. (laughs) So what are we doing? All right, last point. Uh, The terror watch list and the no-fly list are different things. So the no-fly list has 47,000 names on it. The terror watch list has a million names on it. They're different things. But senators use them interchangeably which is a should be a massive red flag if if, if they're so sloppy in describing what they want to do guy goes back to what we talked about at the top of the hour about the plumb line they don't define their terms they're a little bit off plumb in the beginning and it's going to be way off in the end so they don't define what assault weapons are they don't define weapons of war they don't define the terror watch list they use it interchangeably with the no fly list these are very different things it is sloppy reactionary ill-conceived and pointless but it always goes back to the only argument they have. We have to do something. Nothing good has ever resulted from, well, we have to do something. Like, that doesn't ever end well. Slater Radio on Twitter, one 888 Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
0: Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment. On the Blaze Radio Network. nine hundred thirty three ninety three
2: Mike Slater is on. Slater, I got three minutes. I can make this argument here. So this whole gun conversation reminds me of my favorite article I've ever read. My favorite editorial. It's from Hans Fien. He's my age, and it was written after I think the gay marriage Supreme Court ruling. Um, and he he asked. Why, why is why is this a thing? Why, why are people freaking out about this? Why, how did gay rights become the new civil rights? And his argument is, from the day he entered kindergarten, all we learned about was how everyone hated black people. And then there was this group of saintly figures who are better human beings than those rednecks in the South, and they came in and they entered and they changed the world for the better. And that was g- drilled in our heads for 20 years And we grew up wanting to change the world too. We wanted our Selma moment. Now, here's the problem for millennials. We also don't want to actually do anything. So we're looking for this Selma moment, but they're all like hard work, right? I mean, there's a full on genocide going on of children with abortion, but abortion means if we wanted to oppose that, then we'd have to live a life that's consistent with that Position, you know, no out, no sex out of wedlock, stuff like that. So that's off the table. We could focus on poverty, but that involves me donating my own money. And I don't want to do, that. I got bills to pay. Right? So that's off the table. We could focus on sex trafficking. That's a huge deal. Um, but that's, you know, it's kind of out of sight. Like I don't get any bonus points for doing anything about that because no one knows about it. It's not trendy to care about. So I don't really want to focus on that. So there's all all these real issues that millennials are like, meh, whatever. But luckily these social justice gods bestowed on us the perfect cause for our millennial generation and gay marriage. It has everything. It has a marginalized people that no one has ever defended. So we can come in and be compassionate and accepting and more saintly than even the Selma people. And it requires zero effort, no moral consistency, no financial sacrifice, and no effort at all. All you got to do is change your profile picture on Facebook. That's it. It's awesome. That's why gay marriage became the the, the moral cause of our generation. I think of it with ISIS too. That's one reason why millennials and the rest don't want to deal with ISIS because it requires work. It requires confronting difficult questions and realities. And then if it turns out that it is a threat that's dangerous, then that requires a lot of work, like fighting and stuff. So anything beyond... Changing Facebook profile pictures doesn't really fit into the framework of is this something I should care about or do anything about? It's too hard. And we like easy things that don't require anything out of us. That's going to be a major problem as the ISIS threat, terrorist threat gets bigger and bigger. But that's one reason why a lot of people aren't caring about it. But I know you are we got to run Slater Crusaders. We'll see you next Saturday. Have a wonderful rest of your weekend. You like us on Facebook. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater.
0: Part of the next generation of talk radio.
2: On the Blaze
3: Radio Network.